Welcome to tonight's edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be having interviews from Monster Expo Returns, which took place on October 15th and 16th at the Claritin Hotel and Convention Center in Twin, Massachusetts. I will have interviews with James Lamont from It Came From The 508 Productions, Jason Yachenkin from Poultrygeist Night of Chicken Dead, and more. Plus, I will have thoughts on this convention next segment. Then in What's Anthony T. Watching, I talk about the most divisive horror film of 2022, Halloween Ends. But first, the news. Starting off the news, it's great to be an independent horror film fan. Yes, it is, because Terror Fire 2 is making money at the box office. That's right, Terrifier 2 is making money at the box office. Now, you may ask why this is shocking. Because for two weeks now, Terrifier 2 has been in the top 10 grossing films in America. In its two weeks in the box office... The film has made almost $2.5 million at the box office. And this is a film that has been treated a little unfairly. That is a major achievement for an independent horror film. Now, the reason I say this film has been treated unfairly at these theaters is because there's only been like one or two showings of this film per night. Literally, in my area, they're just showing it like once Friday, once Saturday, once Sunday. That's it. Other areas, they're showing it like once a night. And yet, this film has made over $2.4 million. It's a great achievement for people who want original content. And I'm not talking about Halloween Ends. I know some people might think that's original, but I'll say for that for the end of this podcast, because we want to stay with the positive here. But $2.5 million for a film that is not released by a major studio is such a incredible achievement, especially one that is completely unrated. And it's an extreme horror film. I am so happy that Terrified 2 has been a big success at the box office. Given the fact that it had a lot of major hurdles. Did I expect it to make $2.4 million? No. I didn't even expect this film to make $1 million, quite frankly. But the fact that this film has already made $2.4 million and it's going back into theaters... For a third weekend. Tells you something. People want original horror. They don't want the cookie cut horror controlled by the major studios. They want original horror. I have to give it up for Damien Leone, David Horrorthorne, and everyone involved with Terrified too. That film is such a great film. You can go to Film Arcade Media for my review of this film but it's a great job on all their parts that this film has broken the traditional studio stranglehold 
on the theater system. Because in the theater system, you don't get this film in there. And in the theater system, you don't make over $2 million with a film like this. But Terrifier 2 has done it. $2.4 million, and who knows, it may end up with $3 million by the end of its theatrical run, which nobody expected. It's been talked about on major publications now. That's how big this news is, that a small indie horror film is able to make money at the box office. Sure, it's not making 10, 20, 30 million dollars or so, but when you take a step back and you look that this film is not being bankrolled by a major studio and it's in the top 10 for two weeks in a row when there's like one screening a night and in some cases only screening on the weekends, it's a major victory for independent horror. I hope this leads to more independent horror ending up in the major cinemas. Because there is an audience for this. You just have to have a fan base. And you have to have great marketing. And Terrified 2 has had that. And that this is why it's succeeding at the box office. It's just great. Seriously. I never thought in a million years that a film like Terrifier 2 would be in the top 10, first of all, as I literally thought it would be one and done, but now it's going to week three in theaters. That is a major accomplishment, and Damian Leone should be applauded for this because he's done something that no independent horror director has done, kept an independent horror film in major cinemas for three weeks in this age of theaters. In other news, Heather Langenkamp wants to fight Freddy one last time. That's right, she wants to fr fight Freddy Krueger one last time in an Elm Street Legacy sequel. According to Entertainment Tonight, who had a chat with her, it eventually hit upon her iconic role in the original Nightmare on Elm Street film. And she said if Nancy could fight Freddy one last time, I would really like that, she told Entertainment Tonight. She was saying this while being interviewed about Mike Flanagan's The Midnight Club series, which is on Netflix. Now, there are probably only two ways this is going to happen. First of all, if she does this, then Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is going to be retconned. Because you can't have Nightmare on Elm Street 3 in the timeline. You have a, to have another timeline, like the Halloween saga. And I'll talk about that later in the podcast. But back to this news story. There's two things that I think has to happen. First, Robert England has to come back as Freddy Krueger. Seriously. You cannot have Heather Langenkamp in a Nightmare on Elm Street film without Robert England as Freddy Krueger. That would not work. It would feel kind of awkward, to say the least, that another actor playing Freddy why Heather Langenkamp is playing Nancy. And the other thing is, 
somebody has to grab the rights to it if the thing's in limbo. The last time I looked, it was like with the Warner Brothers New Line, but for all intents and purposes, this could be like another Friday the 13th situation because the rights eventually will, if not already, reverted back to Wes Craven's estate. That means anybody could probably get it if they want it. If that were to happen, who would be so inclined to pick up and make the reboots to Nightmare on Elm Street? And make Heather Langenkamp's wish come true. Wait for it. Wait for it. Jason Blum and Blumhouse Productions. I could totally see Blumhouse Productions going after those rights. Because... If that happens, you probably can guarantee both Heather Camp and Robert England back if that happens. Most definitely. But seriously, all honestly, I don't see this happening. But I can understand her wanting to go back to the Elm Street franchise one last time. But I don't know if I want that. Seriously. I don't know. Because quite frankly... Do we really need to retcon the first film and ignore all the sequels? Because Nightmare on Elm Street is perfect the way it is. Look at the remake of that New Line did. That was atrocious. I don't want to see another reboot or an alternate timeline to A Nightmare on Elm Street. Leave it alone. But then again, if there's one person that will do it and make... Heather's wish come true, it would be Jason Blum. I'm sorry, but this is probably the only scenario that Heather Langenkamp gets to play Nancy one last time. If Jason Blum gets the rights. Because you know he's probably going to want to redo, reboot the timeline. You know it. I wouldn't put it past him. He's already done it with Halloween. He's doing it with The Exorcist. So... I just found that interesting when I came across that on BladeDisgusting.com that Heather Langenkamp wants to play Nancy one last time. Do I want her to play Nancy one last time? No. I want them to leave the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise alone. Period. No more Freddy Krueger films. End of the story. I'll explain why in my review of Halloween Ends at the end of the podcast. And with that, that's the news. Discussions, your place for the discussion of horror film, fiction, and all that's fantastic. A weekly podcast here. The discussion is about the most recent horror and genre films. Intelligent talk on a genre that deserves intelligence. A conversation between co-hosts discussing not only the film, but also the connotation that the directors and screenwriters are trying to articulate. When you want more than a review, listen to Dark Discussions. Speaking of perception, there's just one more scene I want to talk about, which is after Caleb discovers that Kyoto's a robot, Kyoto kind of peels off her skin, showing him what's underneath. Now, wait a minute. I know where you're going with this, but tell me you weren't already thinking this 15 minutes earlier in the film. Exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Which is he's a robot, too. Oh, I considered the possibility. Right, and that's what I like, is the fact that the writers were smart enough to know that this is what the audience would be thinking. We've all seen Blade Runner. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. 
www.darkdiscussions.com, wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. Now, recently I went to Monster Expo Returns that took place over in Taunton, Massachusetts on October 15th and 16th. Going into this, I was very excited. At least there was another horror con in October. And personally, <laughs> loved this venue a lot. As the previous Monster Expo shows were in Fairhaven, as they felt like more of like a marketplace type shows. But this one felt like a full convention show with panel rooms, film rooms, all that stuff. And literally, I had a really fun time there, quite frankly. I liked the venue a lot. I thought the venue was very good. I spent a couple nights there as well. I thought it was fun. I got there probably mid-Saturday as I met up with Phil, of course, from Doc Discussions Network. I immediately started going through the vendors, of course, stopping at Deadly Grounds Coffee. If Deadly Grounds Coffee is there... Nine times out of ten, I'm probably going to purchase something from Deadly Grounds Coffee. I did that. Then I started roaming around the convention floor, seeing some old friends, checking out some of the vendors. There were some good vendors there, including The Hole of Horror, Dockside Inc., Morbid Vision Films, Happenstance Horror Fest. I could go on and on with the vendors, but I think they had a very good selection of vendors here as they were different. You had comic book artist vendors, you had a film vendor, you had some Funko vendors, which, yes, I got three Funkos because, well, I'm a Funko addict. I'm sorry. Including my Rob Zombie Funko, which, well, I need to have now since... I love all his films, pretty much, with the exception of House of Thousand Corpses, of course. But anyway, I had a fun time Saturday. I got to meet Erica Anderson from A Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Met Jason Yachankin, whom you'll hear an interview from next segment. He was a fun person to be with. Also met C.J. Graham from Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Nice guy. Picked up a Blu-ray of one of his films. He was also in Highway to Hell, which is very underrated. It also features Chrissy Swanson from the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I had no problem with my interactions with celebs. I met three of them at this con. They're all good. It was nice also meeting some artists as well. Got a couple artist interviews as well that you'll hear next segment. Checked out the indie film panel as well. That was a good panel. It was a busy day. It was fun. And that's what you want to have at a con. Afterwards, I attended the after party. That was also fun. It was great meeting new people there. Met a couple fellow podcasters from other podcasts. A couple authors that attended the convention. It was a fun time, as I really had a fun time that night. Then Sunday morning. I first meet up with my Two From Hell movie podcast co-host, Andrew, as he and PVD Horror World premiered 
his new short film, The Devils 2, as PVD Horror was hosting this event. That was a fun time. I enjoyed the film. I think Andrew has come a long way. And it's not saying this as a friend or a fellow co-host. I think he's come a long way from his first short film to this one. He's doing a very good job. I really like his films. I really think he has talent. I really can't wait to see what he does with The Local Boogeyman, which is his next film. Then afterwards, it was trying to get interviews, walking around the convention, buying stuff, all that fun stuff. Then I sat down for PVD Horror's screening of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge, which I think I came in like maybe... A quarter of the way through, maybe a halfway through. It's grown on me over the years. First time I didn't get it, but second, third time I get it. I like Mark Patton was very good in that film. Robert England's great. It also has the late Cool Gallagher in it as well. Then we had a Q&A with Mark Patton talking about that film. That was a very good panel. Then afterwards, said... Said a c- goodbyes to a couple of my friends. Then headed over to Happenstance Horror Fest. As they were... It was near the end of the day and everything. I got enough interviews for this podcast. So I decided to head over there. And check out some of the shorts that was playing over there. And there were a couple that really caught my eye. I really loved George James Frazier's latest film. Scaring Sherry. I thought that was great. It had a lot of energy to that film. I thought the lead actress in that film was very good. I thought the performance really helped make that film. Another one I really loved when I was over there was The Witch on Bridge Street. I thought the film did a great job really mixing in the humor of the whole selfie generation and the serious horror aspects also no one's good one was black vulture as that was a very creepy kind of supernatural slasher short film i enjoyed that as well so i had a good time at that one i love it when i get a chance to support local indie horror filmmaking it was a fun time watching those films there. As uh, George James Frazier, who runs the festival, I think did a great job in selecting these local shorts. I wish I had more time <laughs> to spend a whole day there. If it wasn't for the fact that I was at a convention, I'd probably spend the whole day there. But I had a great time there. It was fun. If the Happenstance Horror Fest plays anywhere near you i really highly recommend you check it out as it was it was a fun time but if you're into local films in the new england area and you find scaring sherry black vulture and the witch on bridge street i highly recommend you go out of your way to check those films out and that pretty much wrapped the convention it's by then it was four o'clock I wanted to go back in there at 4 o'clock. Seriously. I was so tired. I was heading out. Oh, you know what? I'm going to go run back and, and realize it's 4 o'clock. Because usually 5 o'clock is when conventions end. 
But this one ended at four, which I had no problem. And that was my time at Mazda Expo Returns over at the Claritin Hotel and Conference Center in Taunton, Massachusetts. Overall, I thought this was a very fun convention. I had a very fun time being there. Joe Souza and company did a great job running this convention as everything looked and ran smoothly through my eyes. I had a fun time. You want to have fun times at these conventions. I really highly recommend next year if they run at the Claritin Hotel and Conference Center that you go to Mazda Expo Returns. I know Mazda Expo is doing another Marketplace show April 29th and 30th at the Seaport in Marina in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Guests already announced are Linnea Quigley and Felissa Rose. It's a much smaller show, but the lineup looks very good as they have a theme for this one as this is going to be the Ladies of Horror show. So definitely check that show out in April of next year as tickets are already on sale for that event. Overall, it was a very fun time. I had a very fun weekend over in Toy Massachusetts for... Monster Expo returns, and I really hope they do this event again next year, as this was a very fun event. Hi, I'm Anthony T. And I'm director Andrew Duran, and we are the Two From Hell. And we're putting Rated R back into podcasting. Every month, we will be dropping an episode on the Doc Discussions Network. We'll be chatting about some of our favorite films news, reviews, and maybe interviews. You can find Two From Hell on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast providers. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two From Hell Podcast. Trust me, you're seriously not going to want to miss the show. Every day there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. Welcome back. In the beginning, I told you I also had interviews from Monster Expo, as I have about five interviews I conducted while I was at Monster Expo. Interviews include artist and writer Jeff Beckman, filmmaker Brian Paulin from Morbid Vision Films, 
Otis Bernzig, and actor-slash-author Jason Yashenin, star of Poultry Guys Night of the Chicken Dead, and author of the book The Mysterious Happenings at Two Morning View. But first, I'm going to start off with director James Lamont from It Came from the 508 Productions, as we're going to talk about his latest Indiegogo, Abigail, as he was there as part of the indie film panel that took place on the Saturday portion of the con. I hope you enjoy these interviews, and I will be back afterwards with my review of Halloween Ends. I'm here with James Lamont, director and producer and owner of It Came From the 508 Productions. How you doing today, James? Uh, doing pretty good, Anthony, here at Monster Expo. Really excited. Lots of great stuff going on. What do you think of the convention so far? Honestly, man, this thing's been crazy, right? It's been huge. Huge! Considering it started from like just like a couple of hundred people like just a year ago. And now here we are. This place is packed. Two floors, panels, shows, movies getting screened. It's nuts. It's awesome. It's almost, almost like it feels akin to like what it used to be, like when Rock and Shock and Scarecon and all the big stuff is still around here. You know, it's really cool. I wanted to talk to you because you have a feature film coming up called Abigail, which you currently have an Indiegogo campaign going on. Tell everyone about the upcoming film. Well, Abigail, as you, I don't know, as you may or may not know, Abigail is a full uh, feature-length reimagining of the box, our short film that almost everybody and their cousins seen at this point, I think. Um, we wanted to tear it all down from the ground and then build it all back up in a brand new story with the same kind of vibe, feel, with a shitload more gore. <laughs> it's it's off the chain. It's going to be the scariest thing va- to happen to vampires since Salem's Lot. What made you want to make the, that leap from short films to feature-length films? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people agonize over that, but the simple fact was, like, with the pandemic and everything, we were like, okay, do we want to go back to doing the same old, same old, or we want to take this time to rethink how we're doing stuff? So, basically what we came up with was that we were going to break off into teams. Teams like certain teams are going to handle feature films, certain teams are going to handle episodic stuff, certain teams are going to be doing still working on the short film stuff. Like, we're not going to stop doing the stuff we've already been doing, but I'm making the leap over to feature films because I've done skits, shorts, half hour long stuff, almost features, not quite features, like, it's just time. (laughs) You know, as an artist, in order for me to grow, I feel like it's time to make the leap over to something 90 minutes or longer, you know? Now, you're working with a co-producer this time around. What made you decide to have another production company come aboard for Abigail? Well, the cool thing about it is, is one, it's Gorilla Girl Productions. Ashley Turner out of um, Sacramento, California. She's amazing. She does work with us on stuff with Without Your Head, like with Culture Shock and all those other things. Her show, Three Haunted Podcasts, is over there, too. Um, but basically 
basically that's that's actually not just it's not just going to be Gorilla Go through the Indiegogo we have a producer partnership program and the point of that is is basically we feel like there's we, we all as a horror community as a film community as whatever we all work on our individual projects and then we all try to get them shown and you know we only get so much of the pie we only get so many people viewing it so many. the idea here is basically like let's come together let's pull a little money let's make this movie and let's get an even bigger piece of the pie because of that and let's I, basically we want to bring our friends on board we want to bring the people that have backed us supported us and believed in us and give them a way to actually get their name on something in that capacity and I think it's working out really well so far uh, it's still open for more producing partnerships we're not going to cut it off just yet but it is limited we're not going to have that many people come on but at least a few more we could we could have with the producing partnerships but yeah it was it was just a, basically a decision to get more of the community involved in what we're doing now back to Abigail what made you want to go into the vampire subgenre with this one it's just when was the last time you saw something that was actually scary with vampires I think I did it I think it was the box like, that was the last time I saw something that was scary with vampires so before that though I mean like how many times can we see uh, Kate Beckinsale and Pleather shooting machine guns at werewolves like I just wanted to go back to like something deeply rooted in like New England mythology scary as hell that that feel like that Salem's lot the, the even our own myths like Mercy Brown the Cape Cod vampire like we have like all this rich really scary mythology around vampires that we're all wasting to try and make them look sexy and I think it's stupid like there, there needs to be some kind of counterbalance to that so Abigail is the counterbalance tell me about the cast that set the star in the film Jesus it's huge man did you look at the Indiegogo it's massive yes we got so many people involved we're still not even done casting yet um I mean god Erica's back Dan's back Erica Looker Dan Bouchard if you guys don't know out there um Bob's back Bob Mandel from On Your Deathbed we got Chandra Ankerblom uh well known cosplayer Sherry Lee she's been in a million things a million things around here Alexander Hawk the treasure the New England treasure of of underground horror um yeah no the cast is incredible Tegan's coming in uh Tegan Mendel uh Bob's daughter coming in to play the title character Abigail and she did a fantastic job in the box with and then we got a whole, all the rest of the cast from the box is coming back too the cast is huge they're incredible they're like just top tier as far as you know what what they're putting out right now as far as talent goes it's gonna be amazing the cast is just phenomenal it's awesome what perks are available to backers of this Indiegogo we actually just added um, everything in DVD we weren't gonna put all of the perks in DVD but because we weren't gonna make DVDs anymore but there was a huge demand for it people asked for DVDs so we just provided that but you can pick up DVDs there's posters there's an exclusive backer only t-shirt designed by my assistant director Ryan William Francis Corrigan of that train show it's beautiful um god you can get executive producers uh title associate producer title you can get something as small as um a film thank you IMDB credit there's all kinds of crazy stuff but the really cool thing about our campaign 
the perks. That's all well and good. But the digital perks, you get unreleased scripts. One Last Kill 2 and the box part 2. If you donate enough money, it's in there. You guys can see how we were going to finish the original story before we decided to reimagine it. Um, digital codes. So it came from the 508 Direct. Free. Right in there. And you get all of the digital perks within 24 hours of investing. It's not like you have to sit there and wait for your perks to come like most indie, most crowdfunding campaigns. You buy it, the email goes out within 24 hours, and you've got all the digital stuff right away. How long is this campaign lasting on Indiegogo, and how much are you looking to raise? We're looking to raise $28,000, which will cover abroad the whole kit and caboodle. Um, it's going to end on December 1st, so it's actually going to be going for quite a while yet. We wanted a longer campaign because we know the times are tough. People don't always have a lot of money to throw at stuff, you know. But when they have the extra money, it'll be there for them to do it. You know what I mean? So December 1st. What other projects do you have on the horizon besides Abigail? Well, Anthony, that's a surprise. We can't let that go yet. It's fun stuff. Um, we are working on projects right now that I can't name, but we it's nuts. It's nuts. We're working on directorial debuts from Erica. We're looking at a directorial debut from Dan. We're working on a directorial re, re, uh, debut from Ryan William Francis Corrigan of That Train Show. We have Jeremy's coming back for something real soon, and I've even got a couple of irons in the fire in the short film space that we're going to release as we're trying to promote Abigail. I can't say what they are or when they're coming because it's all going to be a surprise, but yeah, we got a lot going on besides Abigail. It's just we want to make sure everybody's like getting stoked about it. They have to go check us out on the Facebook page at it came from the fiveway uh, productions or it came from the fiveway com. And if you guys are following us, you're going to see it happen. And I'm not going to tell you one. <laughs> And finally, tell me about the podcasts that you're involved in as well. It's your podcaster as well. Oh, um, well, right now, Culture Shock's on a hiatus while we're working on all this other crazy stuff. But if you guys want to check out the archive things, you can go to itcamefromthefiveway.com. We have 55 episodes of insanity that you guys can go check out. Currently, the only podcast I'm actively working on is Dead Kids of Derry over at Boombastic, where we commentate on Stephen King adaptation films uh, with Matt Fisher and Billy Coyne and Jesse and a whole bunch of other people, and it's nuts, and I'm crazy, and we're all crazy, and it's fun. <laughs> Well, James, I want to thank you for coming again onto this podcast. Absolutely, dude. Always love coming on. You know it. It's always fun. Have a good day. You too, brother. I'm here with artist Jeff Beckman to talk about his latest comic, Baseball. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing good. What made you become an artist? Uh, nothing in particular. Uh, I've just always been drawing, and uh, I mean, the people saying that I drew good when I was little made me kept doing it. Your latest comic is Faceball. Tell everyone about the comic. So, Faceball is a sort of a slasher story of uh, four teens that go on a joyride, and uh, they're smashing mailboxes, and then, you know, bad stuff happens along the way. I can't really say much more without spoiling it. Now, what were some of your inspirations in the story of Faceball? Um, like, old uh, stories about people joyriding in the 50s, like smashing mailboxes and stuff like that. 
that. Uh, slasher movies like Friday the 13th, uh, Halloween. So I kind of wanted to incorporate those two together. What made you go for more of a graphic tone in your comic? Uh, that's just kind of the thing I've always been known for, is uh, graphic imagery, but um, also I work in animation also, so it's very cartoony, but also very visceral and gory. What were some of your inspirations in making some of your work so graphic? Um... Just uh, like horror comics that I would read, horror movies, like all the practical effects. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. I just like the the bloody effects in the in movies and stuff. So I want to get that on paper. Now your comic is pretty much in black and white. What made you go with a black and white panel structure instead of traditional color? Uh, I like black and white comics more than full color ones. I guess uh, it's just more more the ones I read are in black and white than color, so that's just kind of how it is in my mind. How can people find your comic? Uh, they can go find my comic on my Kofi shop, but you can find that through uh, my link tree, which is straight Jeff and uh, link dot link. Blinktr.ee slash streetjeffin. What are your future projects? Um, I have another comic in the works right now that is uh, based on my experiences delivering newspapers, uh, like a, an adult paper route. So it's like late at night uh, on a very, on a Sunday morning, delivering newspapers, and uh, something horrific happens. <laughs> Where can they find your work on social media? Uh, I am straight Jeffin everywhere, so it's S T R, the number eight, J E F F I N, and that's on any social media. That's what I'm at. Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Have a good day and enjoy the rest of the convention. Thanks for having me. I'm here with director Brian Pollan from Morbid Vision Film. Says he has a new film called Septic that's currently out. How are you doing? Today, Brian. Doing good. Thanks for having me on here. What made you get into filmmaking? Uh, just being such a huge horror fan. It got to a point where it was just like I felt like I had to take part somehow. Watching wasn't enough. And I just found any way I could possibly do it to start um, creating movies. As people are starting to experience extreme horror films with the whole terrifier craze, tell me what made you get into extreme horror? It was probably simply just from uh, Tom Savini's effects because he always went much gorier than everyone else in the 80s. Um, some of his movies were borderline, almost probably would have been NC-17 back in the day. So just watching the gore that he created and then finding out, um, slowly discovering movies of Lucio Fulci and seeing just how far they went in, in the Italian horror films, it just inspired me and I just kept pushing further and further, and then I, when I found out new techniques of how to do the effects I was doing, it just went from there, just each time just pushing further and further, and then to the point where we are now, and still trying to find different ways of doing it. Now tell everyone the difference between regular mainstream horror and extreme horror. Uh, well, extreme horror, like the type of effects I do, uh, I would say it's more destruction to the human body, I guess you could say. 
um, the type of gore we do, and like someone won't just die with a slit throat. They'll, I describe it as there's a multi-layered process of how the body gets destroyed of a character in one of our films. Uh, someone doesn't go out easy. They go through a long process, and then our gore will get very detailed. And it also, on uh, extreme gore and extreme horror, doesn't just stick to slit throats or an axe to the head. You know, you'll see parts of the body, I guess you say, that you normally don't see in a mainstream horror film being destroyed as well. <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing right there is we don't have to worry about ratings, we don't have to worry about censorship, so we can just do anything we want to any part of your body and just bring it that much further. Now, you distribute your films independently. Why do you do that instead of, say, going through a regular distributor? Um, I'll be careful what I say, but let's just say there's always an excuse why there isn't a royalty check. And that happened, that's happened many times. Um, I've been with three different distributors. And, you know, some of them were good, got lots of exposure. But there was never a royalty check when you know, when you get into a retail store and then you know how many they pick up, but yet there's still, you don't get anything. Everyone else gets a piece except for the person who actually made the movie. So we just said, you know what, let's just do it ourselves. And it's worked out. It's difficult, and we can't do the same exposure that, like, we, obviously retail stores won't pay attention to us. But everything, all the profit goes directly into our next movie. Well, speaking of your films, let's move on to your latest film, Septic. Tell me about that film. Uh, it's definitely our most extreme one we've ever done. Uh, it took a while, mainly because I was having fun. Uh, just, I just wanted to keep filming, and the story kept evolving as I went along. It is, it's a small character story about a young couple trying to have another baby, and they can't do it, so they, are, they find a doctor who's willing to do an uh, experimental surgery to it. But they don't have the money, so they agree to have it streamed on the, on the deep web. And so that's, it, once they get into this world, it gets, they stop finding out just how bad these people are. And they start, um, ended up in the world of red rooms and you know snuff films and stuff. So it gets really dark. This one gets really dark with subject matter. But it also gave us an um, excuse to go really extreme with the gore. How did you come up with the idea for this film? Because there's some really nasty scenes in this film. Um, well, first it started off as a short film that it was actually going to be as an extra for the Dead Girl on Film DVD put out by Black Lava, but that got delayed, and we still shot a short film. But as we're going on, more ideas kept evolving. The story evolved. We're like, you know what? This is this is better than just a 15-minute movie. Let's let's just make it. Let's just keep adding to it and re, you know building the story. But I will also say, it was actually a really dark time in my life at the time, so it's kind of an angry film. Um, it was kind of therapeutic because I was going through a lot of stuff at the time, and a lot of my anger and rage went into septic. What was it like finding the cast for that film? Pretty simple, actually. Um, the lead actor, Steve uh, Savage, I worked with him in a warehouse. And I had found out he was into doing productions, and he's also an independent wrestler who's uh, making a name for himself. Uh, I got in touch with him. We, we decided we we're going to start doing this. He found uh, Morgan for me. He was friends with her. And uh, I had asked a few actresses to do it, but unfortunately, it was the sequence where she actually goes septic, and she starts pulling herself apart and starts skinning herself. 
that scene was a bit too much for some actresses. Like, ah, I can't go that far. That that's a little much much for me. But uh, when I described it to Morgan, um, I said I told her how we we're going to do it. It was actually going to be, you know, how it was none of her real body. It was yeah. going to be all prosthetics and all that. She was like, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, okay, great. And said, well, you have the part then. <laughs> that was as simple as that. The fact that she was able, she agreed to do this, the actual septic scene, which was too extreme for a lot of other actresses. She was willing to do it, so that's how she got the part. What projects do you have coming in the future? We're in the middle of shooting a movie right now called Abysmal Purgatory. It actually started out as a five-minute short for um, Marcus Karch's uh, Symbolicus 2 DVD. So it's actually on there as a five-minute short, but then I had some more ideas. I just thought it'd be fun to expand on it. So that, which was actually, it didn't actually, it was the symbol for water. And that's what this five-minute short was based on. Water was being used in a ritual to help protect somebody. And I just added to it. I just expanded it greatly. But much more of a character story. You start to find out more about the family um, and why my character is doing, like, the black magic rituals. To, it's actually for revenge. And um, so, yeah, it just kind of goes from there. How can they purchase your films on the web? Uh, from our website, mobivisionfilms.com. Uh, we sell on eBay under Mobile Vision Films, and we're also on Facebook Marketplace in the U.S. How can they find Mobile Vision Films on social media? Uh, under my name, Brian Paulin, uh, on Facebook, and also on Instagram under Brian underscore Mobile Vision Films. And that's where I post a lot of the new photos. Usually when if we're shooting something, I get a really good photo from that night's shoot. The next day I'll post it on Instagram. Brian, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. That was fun. Have a good day. You too. I'm here with Bernzig, an artist who has some great horror art here over at Monster Expo. How's it going today, Bernzig? I'm good. I'm doing good. Having a good time. What made you get into becoming an artist? Um, I don't know. I've just always been drawing ever since I was like four years old. Um, my mom used to draw, and I saw it when I was little, and I started drawing. What were some of your inspirations as an artist? Uh, probably like 90s comic books, like the uh, X-Men comics and stuff like that, and creep show kind of comic book art. Yeah, I st- noticed it with some of your t-shirts here, that it does have a comic book feel. Yeah. Now, you sell a lot of merch here, as I noticed. You have t-shirts, prints, pins, mouse pads. What made you want to expand beyond just selling prints? Uh, people are more likely to buy stuff they can use, like mugs, t-shirts, mouse pads, stuff like that. And uh, it's just more fun to see your stuff on all kinds of items than just just prints. What would you say are some of your favorite prints that you've put out in the past? Um, favorite prints? Oh, the Wholesome Horror series where I did, uh, I did like the Creature in Black Lagoon teaching Jason how to swim and like Michael Myers and Sam uh, trick-or-treating together. That's probably like one of my favorites. My newer favorite is House of a Thousand Burgers, which wasn't even my idea. It was her idea right here, but I drew it. Uh, and my Disney princesses. <laughs> of course, everybody loves Terrifier. Terrifier, oh yeah, I got the Terrifier comic book one. That's really popular too. One of my favorites. 
You also have a really nice shirt here with the uh, Killer Clowns. You also like to use rock music as well as, as your inspiration in your art. Yeah, I got. Uh, yeah, I've been doing a few of those now. I have the Guns N' Roses, Killer Clowns, Misfits and Jason, uh, Black Metal Hereditary. That's just like the kind of music I grew up with. How can people find your work online? Uh, mostly Instagram on Burnzig and Etsy for Burnzig. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. Have a good day. Thank you. Hi, I'm here with Jason Yashannon, star of Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, who you may know from Trauma, if you're really big into Trauma, like I assume most of you people are, since this is an indie horror podcast. <laughs> Jason, first question, how did you get into acting? Well, I actually got into acting because of my older sister and older brother. Um, I would go see them perform in high school, like their high school theater productions. And uh, seeing them on stage, I thought to myself, you know what? I want That's what I want to do. I'm doing that. And uh, when I got to high school, I started auditioning for everything you know that the high school was throwing out at us and uh, just kind of fell in love with it that way. And after I graduated high school, continued acting and performing in college and graduated college and made my move to Manhattan to pursue performing. Uh, but it was really my brother and sister that planted that seed of performing and acting. You're mostly known to indie film fans for Poultry Guys Night of the Chicken Dead. What was the audition process like? As this was a horror musical. Uh, the audition process was very long, uh, very bizarre, as most people who are familiar with trauma could probably imagine. Um, you know, the first initial auditions were kind of like basic: come in, do your, do, you know, do your copy that they give you. I did have to sing a song, a cappella, could be any song you wanted. And then after that, it was just round after round of callbacks. Um, some people in the callback got naked during their callback. Um, I did I did not have to get naked. I did get down to my boxer briefs at one point because there is a lot of nudity in the film. Um, and so I only really had to sing once and then just keep continuing to come back to do more scenes and more scenes with different Wendy's. Uh, and, and then after I think maybe about the 10th, 9th or 10th callback, I finally did... What I finally was offered the role of Arby. You also had to record songs in the studio, which is not a normal process for a regular film, since this is a horror musical. What was the recording process like? You know, I'm actually glad we did do it this way, because, you know, we just got to go into the sound booth, right? Sing the songs uh, for as many takes as it took. But what was nice about this was then, when we were on set, and actually shooting, we didn't have to worry about singing for every take. You know, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you do take after take after take. Could you imagine having to sing every time live for every take? So what was nice about this was recording it before the shoot, and then they would just play it back, and you lip sync during the filming of it, which was, as an actor who had to sing, was helpful to save your voice, to not have to sing every time you shot, and, you know, these shoots 
one scene could take, some scenes did take all day to do, so it was nice not having to sing over and over and over again. So that was nice going into the sound booth and recording before shooting. You got to work with Lloyd Kaufman in both an acting and directing capacity. As he was both actor and director in this film. What was it like working with him as an actor and as a director? Uh, <laughs> working with him as an actor was um, was challenging in the sense that he's, he's so funny and he's so committed to what he's doing. Uh, sometimes it was hard to get through a scene because you're just laughing the whole time, right? Um, as a director, I will say he, he treated his actors very well. Um, he was a little harsher to his crew, you know, uh, screaming at them. What, exactly what you would think. Screaming at them, you know, swearing at them. Uh, and then he would go to his actors and be very lovely and very accommodating. And what do you guys need? What do you need? And then do his crew would be like, you fucking morons, fuck you guys. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was interesting to see that kind of how he treated the crew versus the actors. Um, and then acting with him was just, again, very difficult, just in the sense that he was just so out there that sometimes it was just hard to keep a straight face. What was it like filming that famous dance scene with him in that film? That in the basement with the with the brooms and the that scene? Yes. That took an entire day uh, because again I could not stop I could not stop um, laughing at him. He also didn't really <laughs> if I'm remembering this correctly didn't always know all of his lines didn't really know all of the words to the songs and just seeing him in that dress and being the way he is it was it was very difficult to get through but so much fun but that scene in the movie which is what three minutes long took an entire day to shoot because of just how much fun we were having and goofing off and laughing what was the most difficult scene to film in that film oh that's an excellent question I think maybe the the very scene in the beginning the graveyard scene because that was the first time I ever shot overnight through an entire night so by the time that was done um, I think we were all pretty wiped and I'd say that was yeah I'd say that one because it was the first time I ever shot an overnight scene all night and the setup of that with the zombie arms coming out from the ground and being in this cemetery but also having the fake cemetery built set over the real cemetery took a lot of time, a lot of setup. There was also a, a big kind of, um, I, you know, there was a big uh, discrepancy with some of the lines that took a while to, there was a big blow up about some of the lines with the writer and Lloyd. And uh, so I'd say that one was maybe the, the trickiest because as the night got later and later, people's tempers and, you know, patience level got lower and lower. Um, I'd say that one. And I actually think maybe that was the first scene, if I'm remembering correctly, that may have been the first scene we actually shot.
shot of the movie shooting was the first scene, and that was maybe the most difficult. You also have made the transition to author recently. Tell me about your book, The Mysterious Happenings at Two Morning View. Uh, this is actually something I'm, I'm really, really proud of. Now, I'm going to go on and say, look, I'm, I, I never really considered myself as a writer, you know, but it's something that I started to explore as another outlet, another creative outlet, that I actually decided, you know what, hey, maybe I wasn't the best English student, but I don't care. I have, I have an idea that I think is creative. I think I'm a decent storyteller, and I don't care if maybe I don't know all the correct grammar rules. I said, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to write this. I'm not going to let my mind stop me and being like, oh, you don't know how to write, or this isn't a good idea. Because a lot of times I think that's what trips people up, is they're their own worst enemy. But I decided, no, screw that. I'm going to write every day. I've got a good idea. I think people that were alive in the 90s who liked pop punk, who liked punk music, who was in that skater scene, are really going to identify with this. And so I just did it. And it's now grown into what will be a trilogy. The second book at is written. It's not out yet, but it is written. And there will be one more. And I'm just... I'm proud that I was able to say, you know what? I'm going to just adapt and kind of explore another realm of this creative universe that we're all in. And, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of what I've come up with. And uh, hopefully if you check it out, it is available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. You know, I hope a lot of people say that it's like they relive that 90s high school experience. It's like they're there. And the, and the dialogue is very true to that time period and uh, they feel like I've taken that slice of life and that they're reliving it and I and I really enjoy when people talk about that and uh, say that it's true that it is like wow this is like my high school experience to a T so how can they find more information about your upcoming projects uh, you can follow me on Instagram it's at Jason Yashannon 23 the reason why the number 23 is uh, attached to the my last name is because I'm from Cleveland. I'm a big LeBron James fan. And when he was in Cleveland, he wore the number 23. And he brought the championship to us just like he promised he would. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Jason, for coming on to the podcast. And have a good day. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You'll find Anthony T's Power and Wrestling Show on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Instagram, and the Slasher app at Anthony Power and Wrestling, and on Twitter at Anthony Power. You'll find new episodes on DocDiscussions.com, major podcast providers, and YouTube. The following review contains spoilers and language that may not be suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion advised. What's Anthony T. watching this episode? One of the most divisive horror films of the year, Halloween Ends. 
Going into this film, I was so excited. Seriously. Hoping that this would bring a better story, a better energy to everything. But from the beginning of this film, this was a train wreck from start to finish. It was so shocking that this film was a train wreck. I don't get it. Seriously. I get David Gordon Green tried to do something different. I'll give him that. It could have been well executed better. Seriously. It could have. I like original content. And I would have probably been down with his idea. But it was like blunder after blunder after blunder. First off, minor spoilers. Your title credits are in blue. It's Halloween. It's supposed to be orange, not blue. What am I watching here? A Marvel movie? Because seriously, blue... Why did they use blue in this film for the title credits? Seriously, who came up with that acidine idea to use blue in the title credits for a horror film that takes place on Halloween and we associate Halloween with pumpkins and they are orange. I didn't get that. That was the first thing that really pissed me off about this film. The next thing this film pissed me off was the fact that this film had some really bad dialogue. Now, if he had really good dialogue in this film, i probably buy some of this stuff. Seriously. Because I love original content, quite frankly. It's written so haphazardly that it's lazy. Danny McBride, David Gordon Green are better than that, quite frankly. And it was just bad dialogue. It's like, what the hell was I watching here? It's like, why am I watching this film? Seriously. Second, you start this film four days before Halloween. It's like, you know we're going to have problems because, well, this film to slow down at a good pace because you have to start telling a story four days out. Okay. Another thing that I don't like about this screenplay was the new character in this film, Corey. I don't know why we needed to add a new character in this film. Seriously, it really took away from other characters from the previous two films. You had Will Patton relegated to pretty much cameo. He literally did nothing in this film after doing something in the last two films. I don't get that, first of all. Second, we spent way too much time on the Corey Allison relationship because that really... Drag this film down. I know you're trying to tell a story, David, but I don't want to see a relationship this late in the stage of a trilogy. And don't get me started about Michael Myers here. Because literally, I'm going to stop talking spoilers now. Because I did not like the fact that we had Michael Myers and fake Michael Myers. It's just so stupid, quite frankly. It got to the point where the last 
third of the film where it dragged with pretty much a montage of death scenes. You had like six, seven death scenes in like 10, 15 minutes. There's no scares in those scenes. It's like a procession of scenes. It's like you do a collection of death scenes. It is not scary. It's just boring. I don't get it. Quite frankly, who thought this would be a great idea to have Corey go on a killing spree in a 15-minute time frame? Literally. It's like, why do we even bother introducing this new character? This new character flat-out sucked. And the fact that David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, and his team of writers failed miserably. Jamie Lee Curtis, I don't know what she was thinking doing this film. It's like they were trying to make a serious drama. I'm all for doing something different with the Halloween franchise. Don't get me wrong. But when you have constant scenes of Jamie Lee Curtis writing her memoirs, Corey dating Allison, Jamie Lee Curtis talking to Corey, it's like, I don't know why. Corey was the big problem with this film. Why did we need to have him in this film or even in this franchise, quite frankly? Because seriously, this was just horrible. All the horrible mess in this film centered almost around Corey. And I'm going to give you another spoiler. Michael Myers in this film is only in this film for like 10 minutes or so. Seriously, he was not in this film for long. And when I watch a Halloween film, I want to see the shape. I don't want to see fake Michael Myers. I want to see real Michael Myers. Instead, most of the time we saw fake Michael Myers in this film. And it's like, it's ridiculous. Seriously, guys. I don't want to see fake Michael Myers. There's a reason why people love The Shape. And it's because of what the character has done. But David Gordon Green and Danny McBride got a jump start on The Exorcist by having this so-called relationship between Michael and Corey. Where he just basically stares at the guy, kind of like possessing him in some way. It's This is not the exorcist here, people. This is supposed to be Halloween Ends, not some possession movie where someone goes, grabs a couple people so the killer can kill. I don't get it. They made the shape look so weak in this film. I just don't get that idea. It really was mind-boggling that the shape, who's been this strong character for the first two Halloween films, was pretty much A, a minor character in this film, and B, very weak. I don't associate Michael Myers as a weak character or a weak villain. And in this film, he came off as a weak villain. Having to have someone else do your bidding for you. I don't get it. Seriously, David. I don't get it, Danny. I don't get it, Jason Blum. How can you three do this? Seriously. 
No wonder why this film ended up on Peacock. Because they figured this film will suck. After word of mouth. And it's just awful. Seriously. This was just an awful film. I don't get why they even tried it. Seriously. The idea was good. I'll give them that. The execution was just flat out horrible. If we had more of the shape in this film. This would have been a really good film. But instead we had to make Corey the main character of this film. Because that's what this film felt like. It felt like Laurie Strode, Allison, and Corey were the main characters of this film. And that's not what a Halloween film should be, quite frankly. The shape shouldn't be reduced to someone who's just weak and having to possess somebody in order to... With the exception of the last 15 minutes of this film, he felt like he was just there for this entire film. I just don't get it. Seriously. How could Jason Blum greenlight a script like that that was going to piss off a ton of Halloween fans? I just don't get it, Jason Blum. What is with you? Seriously. You think you know what we want. We don't want Michael Myers in a film for 10 minutes. I'm sorry. And it's not even that. The deaths, there's no tension to any of the death scenes in this film. Even when fake Michael Myers kills people in this film. There's no tension. This was just flat out a train wreck from start to finish. Easily one of the worst films of this year. It's up there with Halloween 5. And the theatrical version of Halloween 6 adds the worst ones in this franchise. This was just flat out awful. I'm glad I did not see this in theaters. Really. This joins the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the Jason Blum produced Firestarter reboot as some of the worst horror films of the year. As David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, and Jason Blum really ruined this franchise for now. Because, quite frankly, this was fucking awful. I apologize for my language, but that's what this film was. As it was atrocious. And that four-year time jump proved out to be a big bust. It amazes me. This year has provided two horror icons in one-star movies. I don't get it. If you're looking for something that's original horror and it's done effectively, watch Terrified 2 whenever it hits Screenbox. That's great horror. Or watch the reimagining of Hellraiser in which Pinhead was great. But you have Leatherface and Michael Myers in that club of worst films of 2022. I never thought I would say that in a sentence, but it is true. Unbelievable. Unbleeping believable. Halloween ends turned out to be a train wreck. And we can all thank the middle of Halloween Kills for turning this trilogy into a failure. After one of the greatest reboots of all time. Great job, David Gordon Green. Great job, Danny McBride. You ruined Halloween. You've done it. You ruined what you could have had a great trilogy and just ruined it. And shame on Jason Blum for allowing this script and the way David Gordon Green played with the ending of this film. Because literally, 
This film is just the last ten minutes of this film. That's it. As everything else sucked. Over on FilmArcadeMedia.com, don't forget to check my review of Don't Bleep in the Woods 2. That's right, I said Don't Bleep in the Woods 2, as that review is up now. Also, my Terrifier 2 reviews up there as well. Next episode will be a mini-episode, as I'll be joined by Philip Perrone from Doc Discussions, as we will preview Rhode Island Comic Con. That is happening November 4th through the 6th at the Rhode Island Convention Center and the AMP. That's right, the AMP. Amica Mutual Pavilion, formerly known as the Dunkin' Donut Center. If you like this episode or this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and major podcast providers. You can find the latest info on the podcast on Facebook and Instagram and the Slasher app at Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling. On Twitter at Anthony T's Horror. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a good day. Support indie wrestling. Support indie horror. This has been a Film Arcade Media production.